everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and in today's program, we'll be discussing the film experiences our team are most thankful for this holiday season. First, LaRon Chapman and I reflect on our thankfulness for the film studio and distributor A24 before we review and bring analysis to one of their latest movies, The Killing of the Sacred Deer. Some of the most ordinary moments are weird and uncomfortable just because of how the lines are delivered or how the characters act. It's very alienating, very disorienting, but in a fascinating artistic way. Later, Alexandra Bohannon will reveal and analyze the film scores she's most thankful for this holiday season. Music as a universal language is so fascinating. Yeah. And just like how film can also be a universal language. I mean, even if we have to translate it and put subtitles on it, we can still get at the underlying issues of, you know, love and hate and revenge and war and happiness and sadness. In closing out today's show, guest contributor Bobby Griffith will detail the important impact the friendships of the crew of the Enterprise in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan had on his formative years. The friendship is evident, uh, particularly over the motion picture. The deep, abiding friendship that made the original series so special is clear. All of this is coming to you on the Cinematic Schematic, next. And welcome to your new film release segment of the Cinematic Schematic, Silver Screen Soliloquies. I'm your voice of the Cinematic Schematic in the Cinematropolis Radio, Caleb Masters. And joining me in this segment is writer and director of the upcoming film, You People, and cinema lover extraordinaire, Laurent Chapman. Laurent, welcome back. Good to be back as always. So this month at the Cinematropolis, we've been looking at films we're thankful for, and today, Laurent and I will be discussing our thankfulness for films produced and distributed by A24 by taking a look at one of their newest releases this fall, The Killing of the Sacred Deer. Laurent, A24, would you say you're a fan? I'm a huge fan. They have a really good track record at this point. I don't really think they have made a film that I have just disliked. Having won a Best Picture film last year, that little studio is really building a lot of ground, particularly for art house films. Yeah, they're they're really sh- shining a light on films that even like what five years ago, ten years ago, definitely wouldn't have been on that air that sweet spot for for uh, medium budget projects. Absolutely, yeah. So, who is A twenty four? Well, just in case you're not familiar, they are an entertainment company that specializes in film projects, financing films, and film distribution. And since they were founded in two thousand twelve, they've delivered indie darlings and hits like Spring Breakers, Room starring Brie Larson, Ex Machina, The Witch, or The Vich, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Green Room, Swiss Army Man, 20th Century Women, and, as Laurent just mentioned, last year's Best Picture winner, Moonlight. In 2017, they've already treated us to, I'd say, a few notable films. We had Free Fire, A Ghost Story, and It Comes at Night. So let's go ahead and get into our discussion of The Killing of the Sacred Deer. We. We don't have to worry about nothing Cause we got the fire And we're burning one hell of a something They They're gonna see us from outer space Yeah, I'm really sorry about Bob It's nothing serious No, it is Like we're the stars of the human race Human race Where did you two go? The IMDb summary describes the killing of the sacred deer as Stephen 
A charismatic surgeon is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. This is uh, the same director, uh, Yorgos uh, Lanthimos, who also directed The Lobster, which was a, a big hit last year. I mean, at least among <laughs> among cinephiles, I think it got a, got a lot of buzz. Uh, so, Laurent, first we're going to do a very quick reaction to it and recommendation. What did you think of The Killing of the Sacred Deer? I think it was a very chilling, kind of disturbing character study, multi-character study, that I think has a very singular vision. Definitely odd, definitely strange, but really fascinating I think it takes a lot of the things that we saw in The Lobster, which is that it's just so dark and morbid, so dark and morbid, that it's kind of funny in a weird sort of way, a very dark, absurdist brand of humor. But, I mean, through that, he's able to showcase his very unique voice and you knack for bizarrely creative stories. Then his films kind of feel like they live in their own little world. They're very idiosyncratic, you know, they just have a very... Just again, just a very disorienting way that they speak, a very disorienting, you know, look to the film. Definitely very sensory throughout. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, of course, you have this is going to reunite uh, Lanthimos with Colin Farrell, who is in, who is also in The Lobster, and uh, Nicole Kidman. Uh, we even got Alicia Silverstone in there for a scene. All the performances are, are really top notch. Some of the best work I think any of these performers have done. And, and that's, and that's yeah. saying a lot coming from Nicole Kidman. So right. this is not a film for everyone. This is not even. Even a, a film for all cinephiles. This is a film for people who are fans of art house experimental films. I feel like it'll be even more divisive than Mother. <laughs> I it, think so. I, you, I do. I think you're, we're going to get more people to to pick a side uh, with Mother than we will with this. Yeah. I, it, it's weird because this is the movie that's it's getting a lot of comparisons being made between this and Mother. And Mother, I think, in a lot of ways, it's a lot crazier. It go, it Fair. swings for the fences a little harder. Like just it, it, it's just so much more confrontational. Like right. it's so much more in your face. Right. Uh, just as dark as this film in a lot of ways. But I think this film, the, again, it's so idiosyncratic. Like you said, it's so weird. And I know Mother is a strange film you don't see every day, but like I yeah. I connect more with the themes and the s- stories and like even the characters as, as whatever they are. clear for sure. Yeah. This movie it, it, it's I feel like I could study this movie for years and still not know exactly what the hell it is. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's fair. Of the two, weirdly Mother, a crazy divisive more, film. This film was probably more, more cohesive. Than, yeah, it's more. It is somehow more cohesive than the killing of the sacred deer. And it's funny because no one would say Mother was cohesive. No, so. not at all. Not at all. But uh, here we are, 2017. I will say, if I was picking one, I would go with Mother personally. But I think this film is something else, and we're gonna get way into that something else here in one moment. We get into our analysis of the film. Uh, but uh, Laurent, so recommendations. I, I say recommend at a matinee if you were into our house film this is a great 10 o'clock 10 a.m 2 p.m sunday matinee when you're when you're like geared up you're ready to go you're focused and you can sit in on it uh, not late at night when you're tired yeah when you've had your brain food and you are willing to i would say matinee for sure definitely when you're able to because you're going to be doing some some active viewership so um it's not something you can kind of you know um, breeze through without some doing some kind of mental gymnastics throughout. Oh, so. yeah. So that, those are our recommendations. We're going to spend a lot more time delving into some of the themes and ideas that, that are at work here because this film is a fascinating film that I think we can talk a lot about. So spoiler free review is if you were into specifically if you were into art house experimental films, Matinee. 
Everyone else, stay far away. Stay far away. You will hate this movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't you care. You will sacrifice us for this podcast. You, <laughs> you, some, you will, part of your soul might die uh, in, in, in the films. If you do not wish to be spoiled on, this, on the killing of the sacred deer, go ahead and tune out now. If you're still listening and you get spoiled, well, mm, too sorry about you. Uh, <laughs> I was really looking to this film because I, it's such an oddball film. And I, I think it was interesting that my first, I had the same feeling as I, I did coming out of The Lobster. And what was interesting about The Lobster was I found out that a lot of those films, those films' ideas, especially the way it presents marriage, ties into to the way marriage as an institution works from like a Greek perspective. I remember thinking and reading a lot about like how obviously in Greece, you know, my big fat Greek wedding, like weddings and, and matchmaking and all that's like a huge deal. So that movie is definitely about marriage. And I feel like he's applying those same kind of Greek perspective to uh, life and death and, and revenge narratives. Here. Yeah. Life, death, revenge, definitely the themes of atonement, eye for an eye sort of. Yeah. In doing some research in the title, I did find out that this is based off of Greek, lore going all the way back to Agamemnon the that would be the general who took Troy battle of Troy the big general and mm-hmm. who sacrificed his daughter to win the war well apparently in one of the versions of this story the reason Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter was because at some point he had accidentally killed what was called Artemis's sacred deer mm-hmm. and in order to get the blessing of Artemis going into the battle of Troy he had to demand sacri- like he had to sacrifice one of his loved ones yeah, in order to win the war. So this film is very similar. We have heart surgeon. It's uh, Colin Farrell who accidentally killed Martin. This is the, the, the boy. I think his name's uh, Barry Keegan, who actually was in Dunkirk earlier this yeah. summer. Before the film even takes place, his father had died at the hands of Stephen in some sort of surgery. Right. Uh, again, total accident. But Martin demands sacrifice in exchange for his father's death. Yes. So I think there's this weird... I, I mean, if you really want to delve into it, there's some ideas here working ab- about the value of a human life. An mm. eye for an eye. Like, oh, well, I lost my father. Uh, I need one of your loved ones. It doesn't matter which one. Just any of them. Could be your, your, your son, your daughter, your wife. Yeah. And what is... It? Apparently, it's exactly that. Eye for an eye. And it's interesting because most of the movie is really going to be Colin Farrell as Stephen trying to weigh which one of his children he loves the most or loves the least. Right. While at the same time agonizing over the fact that he has to be in this position to begin with. Right, yeah. And he's very indecisive because we have later in the film, he actually talks to one of their their principal or one of the teachers at the school (laughs) who says, well... Your daughter is really brilliant in the arts. She's got she's got a voice like a goddess. She can sing. She can paint. Uh, but your son, man, he's a math whiz. A plus. Both of them are A plus students. And he's like, and Colin Farrell just sits there and it's like, well, I, I mean, if you had if, to choose one, if you had to choose just one, just one, which which one would you prefer? If, prefer, yeah. And uh, of course, he doesn't give him an answer, which right. then. <laughs> reinstates his issue. But. Right, yeah. I mean, so there is this you know, really weird kind of theme lying th- uh, running throughout, which is how does one weigh the value of a human life? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously for him, it's the most personal lives to him, his wife his and his children. Like, how do you decide which one you like more? <laughs> like, isn't that so dark and bleak? It's, it's dark and bleak, but it, it, it does, you know, uh, generate, you know, a lot of intrigue in the movie, though. But I think that um, Colin Farrell... Uh, as he's dealing with this, what's fascinating about all of his choices is none of them are predictable and none of them are clean cut. 
um, at no given point are we aware of any decision that he will probably make. Right. Um, because he's hard to read. He's not, he's not, he's not someone that we could easily relate to, I would say. Well, and I, I'm glad you mentioned Colin Farrell because the performance here from Colin Farrell is, it's weird because he comes across as such a calm, collected guy, and he is, but when it comes to making these big choices, he doesn't know how to react. Yeah. And everything is randomized. I mean, at the end of the film, uh, yeah, he, <laughs> This movie's so funny, yeah, and it's so dark. Like the notion of a man having to decide how to, like, which one to choose. He puts bags over their heads, puts a bag over his own head, loads a shotgun, and spins around in circles in hopes of and of knocking one of them one of them off. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know why I and this happens happened a lot in the movie. I laughed a lot during that scene because, but it was so grossly uncomfortable. But it's like the way they executed it, the way they held out those long. Just come like long silences, and then like the way they use the in that one in particular, it's like pitter 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 patter pitter patter. It's like is he is he really right. about to do this? Right. I don't think it's and that's the thing is I don't think it's really like where you do laugh. You laugh a lot throughout it, and I think it's it's not really because it's funny. I'm not saying it's not, but it's it's that it's just so uncomfortable that it's nervous laughter. Right. You don't know how to react in this situation because you've never been put in the situation, and then and they're so absurd, and you, you know you it's it's hard to really fathom what to think in that moment and so you laugh out as 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 a human response to these these really unusual situations that are R- taking place very i mean you have even things like his kids who they fall to paralysis or in the movie and like by the end of the movie they start crawling on the ground and like it's just it's just such an absurd image of children crawling around this house yeah because they don't have wheelchairs or anything and that's how they get around and it's like man this is bonkers it's kind of funny but then when you but it's also sad so sad well the way their arms get scratched up and the, and the way they're just yeah. and the way they're, they're begging for their life his son there's like a thing about his dad never liked his son's haircut and his son just is like, look, Dad, I cut my hair just like you wanted to. I might have value to you now. It's like, you know, it's just, there's just, there's a lot of that. And, um, but yeah, I was gonna say, it feels kind of like, again, like, I mean, for him, for, for considering the couple films that he's made, um, it is the most on paper, probably the most familiar to a film that we've seen before. And, and, just in just the bare bones but it's just the way he executes it and the way his characters act and the way that it's shot and the way you know everything that's that's is just disorienting the some of the most ordinary moments are weird and uncomfortable just because of how the lines are delivered or how the characters act or again or how the how the music is layered in a in a particular scene it just it's 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 again it's very alienating very disorienting but in a fascinating artistic way but. yeah well and the thing is uh going back to the delivery the deadpan delivery like because colin farrell is so i mean really everyone in this film is kind of like emotionless they're all just very yeah very i i said at the end of it i was like it was like everyone had asperger's <laughs> everyone yeah. and like Put a put a, a whole you know six people who have Asperger's and tell them to start communicating with each other and it's just it's fascinating to watch. It's so we well, I mean even going back to that scene where Alicia Silverstone's on the couch with Colin Farrell and yeah she's clearly into and uh, God the weirdest hand your hands are so clean and nice which uh, which really is okay. is not a threatening thing to say no. but it's just weird to say it's like a, no a, one would say that right. and you're like well what are you sizing me up or like I don't understand like. Can I see your hands? Do you mind if I touch your hands? And it's just like, I mean, yeah, again, like you said, like, not really a threatening thing. 
but definitely weird, strange, yeah, and just strange. It, just like they don't, they're not aware of, they're not. There's lack of self awareness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like Colin Farrell just sits there, and he's like, "Sure, look at my hand. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes, you may." Yes. As he watches Groundhog <laughs> yeah. Day, you know, yeah. uh, and then she starts making out with his hand, and it's like, and then he's like, "Oh, I think I'm going to go now. I'm going to leave now." <laughs> exactly. <It's> just, it, <laughs> and you just, like you said, it's like the, the, the situations are just so absurd. They're just. They're so out of the realm of anything I can think of in my own life experience that I can't place myself in it. So it's like you're glued to the screen because you you, you can't take your eyes off of it because everything is just so, you know, decidedly odd, you know, just um, and and you have to just kind of get swept up in it. Right. Um or, or like the lady behind us, you know, sigh every 15 seconds. Sigh every 15 <laughs> seconds. Stylistically, I, I think it's a really interesting choice for this film because you have these people in this really weird predicament, but the way they all react so just emotionless and deadpan. Now, there is one scene where Colin Farrell breaks down, but that's it. Like, that's just that, the one. And there's it. one, too. Like, what I'll say about, like, particular, like, uh, like, he has one scene where he breaks down, and it's after a significant amount of trauma has, has transpired. Uh, Nicole Kidman has one moment also, and I think it's when the second child um, falls to paralysis of oh, some sort. Yes. She has a, a moment with the doctor, I believe, where she's emotional. And it's it's just those few fleeting moments like that where you're getting you're given some kind of you know human reaction that, that you can relate to. Like, why would, you know, like... She seems some. I mean, obviously they're all bothered by what's happening. It's really disturbing, right? What's happening to their kids? Like, why? Why are they suddenly fallen sick? Why are they suddenly fallen to these grave situations with no explanation whatsoever? And then that maternal reaction it feels very honest, and so it, it is another moment. And she's one of those actresses that can do that because she's been in wide ranges of, sure. of odd films mm-hmm. like this where they have the strangest narratives, the strangest predicaments, but she's always able to ground some humanity in the character enough like where even in an artificial world, she is your like kind of human viewfinder. Yeah, like, and if this says anything, Nicole Kidman is the woman who like when she went, when they are ready to have sex, like lays in some weird, some weird, weird corpse like position, position, and that's like her invitation to, I guess, you know, yeah, <laughs> to have intercourse with her husband. Yeah. So it's just it makes it does make the characters hard to connect with, and I think Nicole Kidman is is a great casting choice because of what you said. Because we're so used to having her as like a surrogate character for, right. for the audiences to connect with emotionally we needed that here that's the weird for such a dark twisted subject it was so weirdly dry mm-hmm. and flat all the performances uh, so those moments and that and that also makes those moments we talked about really stick out more and, and yeah. be more effective now i mean my favorite was when uh, the the kid uh, martin is like kind of giving he's, he's giving colin farrell like his ultimatum so you have all these wtf moments and that kid though barry keegan uh terrifying what a chilling performance yeah um it, it's weird it's monotone but he's also seems really vulnerable and pining you know like he needs this um he needs the attention right of you know from colin farrell's character at you know constantly right and and so he has this vulnerability, but also this really cunning, menacing side where he seems to be soulless or heartless right. in the face of really tragic situations. Especially when eating that goddamn spaghetti. Remind me never to have spaghetti in the same room as that kid ever in my life. He Holy just crap. has a face and a, a mannerisms that 
that are oddly not human that feel very like you know they're so just cold and disconnected and the way he just talks about things is so weird yeah the observations they make that's another thing like there's a lot of them just musing right. about innocuous things in life and and just the observations they make are uncomfortable because yeah. they're not the things you notice. They're not things you would comment it's on. Like, it's like why it sounds like a, everyone's a serial killer and they're all they're all like yeah. going on about their thing that that makes them a serial killer. Yeah, exactly, the little tick or the little yeah. It's just it's very it's very fast. It was really interesting when Martin really got on you know talking about lying though. He was like, oh, I think I think your husband's really actually into my mom, and he he came yeah. over and like even though he knew that wasn't true. Yeah, you know, uh, it was, I don't know. It's really fascinating. But the, the scene where he's locked in the basement and bites off his own flesh, though that that was uh, that was really where it put me over. Where yeah. this guy has definitely reached serial killer levels. This yeah. guy is not right in the head somehow. Yeah. And again, that's kind of the personality I feel like of the movie. Like uh, yeah. as a whole, I think more so than any other character in this film. I think it's it, Martin kind of represents the character of the movie, which is just cold, calm, disconnected, focusing on very strange things, and all of a sudden, ooh, it's twisted and disturbing. You know, oddly enough, and I. I after I was watching, I was trying to compare these characters to something, and um, I really think <laughs> if we're looking at Blade Runner, you know, yeah. Uh, if I'm going to try and conflate these two things, the replicants, you know what I mean? How they all they're they're lacking some kind of human emotion, and they're supposed right. to just this is how they operate. But except these people are operating well, allegedly in the real world, yeah. So it feels very. It, it, again, it's very disorienting because they, again, the kind of observations they're making, the kinds of things they're saying, just feel so disembodied from anything human. Right. And and yet they're in a very human situation. So it's a puzzle, you know. Right. To kind of wrap your head around it, you know, as it's going along. But, again, also very fascinating at the same time. Well, so. yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that, that with this film, too, is it doesn't really lay down the rules specifically. Nothing's so, spelled out. Yeah, nothing. Like, they almost give you the rules. Like, it, okay, so I like how you mentioned a second ago, hey, this is set in the real world. It's set in the real world where there's no police. Apparently, uh, apparently police don't do anything, and apparently surgeons, the best surgeons in the world, just kind of give up. It's like his own weird version of reality. Exactly. That that exists, because it, it, it does, and, and that way it does kind of feel like a greek tragedy that's when it shines through when you have like these like very weird plot details that seem like they're kind of fantastical oh okay well the doctors looked at it and they gave up right you know and then like and then like everyone just accepts the circumstances and yeah. kind of i don't know there's something it's very misanthropic and i feel like also it feels like the when you're meshing if i'm looking at in particular like visually how this film is executed or uh, cinematically you know um again the score is blaring you know the camera you know the camera angles the camera movements are all very swooping and very hitchcock a lot of, lot of tracking shots everything is very wide until it's not then and, it's a close-up then and it's, it's very personal close-up mm-hmm. yeah it, everything's again is very intimate and very uncomfortable um, but and then and the the and I'm still again there's things to think about like the opening shot of this movie it's the firstly this movie opens and the screen's black for like at least a solid thirty seconds yeah and then the next thing you see is a beating heart and heart surgery and yeah. it just holds holds yeah it's like a real heart beating in someone's chest uh-huh. on the surgeon's floor I mean mm-hmm. on the table, table. You know? and it just feels very. Again, after a while, it's weird. It's at some point, at first, it's disor- It's like I say disorienting. It's, at first, it's jarring and uncomfortable, but then at some point, it's kind of calm. Yeah, and you yeah. just kind of get used to it. Right. It's like, oh, it's the heart beating, but it's 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 again, it's grisly, and but you, at some point, you just become at ease with it. Right. And that's kind of how the film works too. You know, so um, it 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 kind of catapults you, you know, into this 
this kind of foreign world with characters that unlike any any you've ever met with you know motivations and choices and making choices that you can't fathom you know so it's really it's it's interesting yeah yeah absolutely uh really fascinating so uh the of course this is again like i mentioned the the one of the big themes being revenge uh and not only how you know, Martin in this film is already kind of consumed with revenge from the from the get go. But I think this also showcases what the impact revenge has on others or the people who are being revenged upon. You know, uh, because I mean, with this family, by no fault of their own, is just is put in this really dark circumstance and it drives them crazy and ultimately leads to death. No real resolution. Because um, I, I do want to get to the ending before we wrap up today. There is no meaning to it ultimately yeah, it's, i mean it's it's ambiguous for sure ambiguous it all leads to it crescendos into into a vast abyss of of you know unknown right <laughs> so but again it it as it's going it's it's one of those like so distinctly cinematic it has so many echoes of like old kubrick i kind of re- remember moments of uh like Eyes Wide Shut kind yeah. of came to mind. Um, Michael Haneke's uh, Funny Games came to mind. Mm-hmm. It has, again, that singular tone and vision, you know, that's just, you know, it's weird. It's a it's a train wreck that you can't take your eyes off of. Right. Yeah. No, no. I, I think those are both uh, really great uh, comparison or films or films you could pair it with. You know, I, I think this is even more of a Kubrick film than I would say The Lobster even. Uh, the, the, oh, lob, the, the Lobster kind of what leans into the more in the Wes Anderson territory, I think. Mm. But this one definitely leans more into the high mindedness of uh, a Kubrick film for sure. Not that the, not that. The Lobster is not a high-minded film, but this is definitely, I think, the way the themes and the execution plays. I think you're looking at something that feels even more cerebral here. There's a moment that was just, I don't know why it stands out to me as being like probably one of the creepier scenes in the movie. So when the the daughter, you know, runs off with, with Martin off on the, I guess they went out to the park or some somewhere outdoors. Um, and she starts, there's just this acapella version yeah. of her singing a very... I mean, well-known pop song, uh, Ellie Goulding's mm-hmm. Burn, I think it's what it's called. I mean, they just let her sing the entire song with no music in the background, just just her voice. It, no, one's, no one's around. It's just, it's weird. It's kind of, it just has a, I don't know, it's one of those moments, too, that where, like, you're getting a, a little tinge of humanity, but it's just, it's, it's misplaced. It's, it, out, it's, it's human, when it just and it makes... <laughs> It's used in a way to set make the the mood feel even darker. Oh, look! Yeah. Here's this bright song that she's singing in an acapella, and it doesn't sound. It just it's unsettling. It's unsettling throughout. Yeah. The whole film is unsettling. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the music, I, even that scene, made me feel a little more uncomfortable. Even though, uh, yeah, I would typically agree this is a moment of humanity, but like the humanity they, they showcase and how they go about it just feels eerie. Yeah. This is the deep breath before the plunge because you know that the song after the song's ever nothing good's gonna come of it. <laughs> yeah. They take you. They take you. They give a little moment like that throughout the whole film. There's always just a little bit of something that's just off kilter. To make something that seems seemingly ordinary just terrifying, yeah. you know. So, absolutely, M- my big takeaway from this film is is just don't be a surgeon. <laughs> just don't be a surgeon. Don't be a don't, surgeon. Don't have people's lives in your hands ever in your career field ever. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah, just don't do it. So the film ends. The, the first place that we see Martin meeting with with the uh, Colin Farrell and Stephen is in a diner, and basically at the end of the film, you see Nicole Kidman, Colin Farrell, and their daughter. All at this diner. Their son is dead. Colin Farrell spin around in circles and shoots something, kill his son. Mm-hmm. 
and I guess they seem okay. They see, and they see Martin walk in just again, just creepy, terrifying. And you're, th- I thought Martin was going to come over and sit down with them or something, right? right? Yeah. But he doesn't. He just goes, gets a drink, sips on it in the creepiest manner possible, and then leaves. Yeah. And then that's the movie. It's like, it's like everything came full circle. You know, uh, he lost his dad, and then Colin Farrell had to murder his son. And now the world goes back to the misanthropic, you know, form that it was before, you know, it's the, what, so I guess whatever, str- whatever, ver- should, yeah, yeah, whatever version of, of normalcy that they had before is, I guess, restored at that point. Um, it doesn't seem like he's going to retaliate any further beyond that, but I think it was just kind of a mutual understanding between both of them that, you know, this had to happen. Right. You know, so, well, it's, it's such an uncomfortable thing though, because you also have the thing where their daughter was actually really into Martin too. That's the thing. And like, even yeah. the way she eyes him at the end makes me feel like, is it, is this, is this the end? Are they, are is she going to run away with him after the credits roll? Like, I, I don't know. I can never understand if he was going along with her, you know, to get closer to Colin Farrell's character or, or if he really liked her too. And that was just his, ver- his weird screwed up version of that because he was young enough that he should have been interested in something at that point mm-hmm. but even his exchanges with Colin Farrell like it seemed at the very opening we don't really know the nature of their relationship it seems he's been seeing this kid in private you know unbeknownst to his wife Nicole Kidman for an extended amount of time and they're meeting in private areas along in in his demeanor towards him, like, oh, can I give you a hug or can I, you know, just it, it feels very borderline like there's some sexual contact. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. And it's never spelled out whether that ever happened or didn't happen or if they just had innocent conversations and they're just both two, you know, strange individuals. But um, it's definitely the subtext is there. At least the, I, I can definitely see that he's leaning towards us feeling uh, like I, that's there, that's there's what definitely happened. some like uh, in the subtext. I would definitely agree. There's some sexual tension there that's yeah. a little bit uh, meant to be left ambiguous. Uh, so uh, moral of the story: don't be a doctor surgeon. And revenge is uh, a costly it's matter. Best best served cold. <laughs> yes. Now before we wrap up our conversation today, I do want to talk a little bit about A24 has a lot of releases. We're both very excited for coming Absolutely. right around right around the corners. We head into the uh, the awards prestige film season. So we've got the Florida Project, Lady Bird, the Disaster Artist, the Ballad of Lefty Brown. So, which of those are you most excited to see the one? Um, of those, I'm going to say probably uh, the the Florida Project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that one's the that, that would be the Wilm Dafoe, Sean Baker. Is it Sean, Sean Baker? yeah, Sean Baker. He did Tangerine, he did Tangerine. years ago, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. Definitely, this looks totally different, but but I, some of the themes look pretty similar, though. I, yeah. the, the idea that it's really following the lives of people who grew up on the outskirts of Disney, but they're all in poverty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so I, I, I think it's, it's the, the through line there for me would be focusing on films about disenfranchised groups of people who are often overlooked by society. Yeah. You know, people don't they don't they don't think about transgender, transsexual people in Los Angeles ever. And they exist. No one thinks, and when you think about Disney World, you don't think about people living near by who might not have any money and be broke you're thinking about the place where dreams come true make a wish you know exactly wish upon a star so yeah i, I think that's a great pick ladybird is getting lots and lots and lots of buzz so that's really close to me but i gotta say the disaster artist okay that movie it looks like the right balance between comedy and drama for me because it looks the trailers are hilarious but like in a way that's again somewhat uncomfortable yeah it's, uh, i'm wondering how meta they're gonna go with that I mean, because it's an actor playing an actor playing an actor, you know, like, right? You know, so and then also 
I mean, and you add that the layer of like James Franco is playing an actor, playing an actor, playing an actor. So mm-hmm. it gets very, um, it gets very meta very quickly. Right. Um, Which I'm a huge sucker for meta films that like are hyper If it's meta. done well. Yeah, yeah. But I think this will definitely be a good performance piece for him. Yeah. Um, and then also excited to see him direct, direct you know, a film, direct a film. I mean, mm-hmm. he's directed a few films actually at this point, but this is probably the one that the most that's getting the garnering the most buzz. Is it, is it weird to say when you watch this film, you're like, this is a James Franco film. This you, feels you know like I mean? It James feels like this feels like a movie he would make. If I was in the head of James Franco, and I've actually met him a couple times. He is a very oddball, very otherworldly artist. You know, like, I love James Franco, so this makes sense. Hearing him talk is fascinating. Uh, it's it looks funny, it looks meta, and it looks like weirdly it's going to have a lot to say about Hollywood uh, and the way films get made. So I'm excited for yeah. it for that one as well. But uh, keep your eyes open for Lady Bird too. That's that, that was one coming out of uh, Toronto film festival that all the critics were raving about. So I'm very excited. And that actually just opened in a limited release uh, the weekend of this recording. So it should be coming to a theater near you very soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, before we wrap up, uh, Laron, where can people find you online? If they want to keep up with your work. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, my first and last name, Laron Chapman. And you can also follow, my feature film you people on at www.facebook.com slash you people movie excellent and you can always again find me on twitter at c masters talk again that's letter c masters talk or on letterboxd and instagram at c masters 91 uh and uh if you've enjoyed listening to lebron and i talk about the killing of the sacred deer in this segment of the silver screen soliloquy on the cinematic schematic please do us a huge favor and head on over to itunes or stitcher radio google play whatever app you're on and giving us a rating you know if you like us you love us give us a five-star rating at this point in the in the story the best way you can support this podcast is by subscribing and rating it'll be a huge help all right ladies and gentlemen we can't wait to return next month when we're talking about misunderstood movie monsters and i think the disaster artist in the shape of water will be top of mind but don't hit that pause button just yet coming up next alexandra bohannon will reveal and analyze the film scores she's most thankful for this holiday season she's got some great selections in store for you so don't go away Songs could not gayer be Sound your do, re o mi, re mi, fa so la si Fa la la la, follow me Why be gloomy? Cut thy nose off despite thy face Listen to me A nose is hard to replace 
in behalf of the Cinematropolis and Planet Thunder Productions, welcome to Soundtrack, a curated sound analysis segment and discussion on the cinematic schematic on the Cinematropolis.com. My name is Alexander Bohannon. I'm the host of Soundtrack. And at this point, life couldn't possibly, not even probably, life couldn't possibly better be. Uh, join me in the kitchen studio as the editor-in-chief of the Cinematropolis.com. Sir, what's your name? Uh, my name's Caleb Masters. And Alex, what the hell was that? <laughs> Yep. I, I, I mean, I feel like it's vaguely familiar, but I have no idea what the hell that song was. And well, where it's I mean, we're totally going to use that as a hook to get people interested in the rest of the show. Caleb, keep up the pace, man. Like, that's like pique your interest. Like, get people into into this this theme, this uh, this show, this segment. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a song or a soundtrack you're thankful for. I take it. it yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, for this month, we are doing the theme of films you're thankful for in honor of America's Thanksgiving, I guess. But it's November, holiday season. I am thankful that the world has given me movies. So, of course, I'm applying it to the soundtrack. And for this month, I'm picking some of my favorite films with also excellent scores. And we'll get into what those films are in just a little bit. I mean, if that first film's any indication, <laughs> holy shit, we're in for a ride. <laughs> we are in for a ride. You, like, okay, with... The our first episode, our first foray into soundtrack, we had like androids and robots, and everything sounded mechanical, and everything kind of had like, even if the like me mechanics of how the songs were played were different, they all had kind of the same feel to them. But this one is like, this is grab bag. This is like every man for themselves. Like all of these movies are wildly different genres, different time periods. Like you're gonna get whiplash from the tonal shift from this first movie to my second movie. Pick. Hey, hey man, we all like lots of different <laughs> types of music. I'm, I'm into it. Sure. I'm into it. Just uh, make sure the insurance covers it with a whiplash. Oh, of course. Oh, wait, uh, wait, wait. So does that mean we're going to get a song from the whiplash soundtrack? No, but I'm sure at some point we will cover Whiplash. So bringing into the show is a song from one of my favorite films since childhood, 1956's musical comedy starring Danny Kaye, Glennis Johnson, Ansel Lansbury, and Basil Rathbone, entitled The Court Jester. Basil Rathbone. Yes, That's he's a the badass name. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's the famous guy from this time period. Like he, I mean, this is like a star-studded cast in a movie that sadly flopped at the box office. It's mm. a shame. They only made about, at the time of production, the most expensive comedy ever made. Because it's like this movie that's set in, you know, medieval, you know, medieval England. It's not really specified. Medieval Europe or what have you. And so there's like castle sets and stunts and, and acrobatics. There's like a lot of stuff that happens in this movie. It's the most expensive comedy ever made in 1956 and only made half of its budget back. For inflation, I actually looked this up the other day because I was curious. For inflation, it was about $56, $56 million to make, but only made back half of its budget. So anyway, this film, scored by Vic Schoen, is, it's truly incredible to me. It's always been one of my favorites since I was in the first grade. I, we had this film on VHS in my house. I wore it out. I made all my friends watch it. I made my second grade class watch it it's, wow i don't you were that person i was, I was that grade. person make people watch the old movies yeah i know uh so for those unfamiliar with the film because you probably are and i'm really sad about that uh, it's a musical set in medieval times it's about an underground robin hood-esque movement trying to topple a tyrant in unjust king basically this guy uh murders an entire royal family he ascends to the throne and then like they have this secret child hidden away and that's like the rallying cry of all of the 
these people. And so they're like trying to usurp the king. This is a comedy? This is a comedy. Caleb, this ain't Game of Thrones. I, I, I mean, I mean, I'm into it. I, I, I'm into it no matter what you say, but comedy. Ooh, yes. Yeah. So, and then basically uh, through a bunch of uh mistaken identity uh danny k uh plays like this kind of bumbling idiot character in the resistance and he gets thrown into being the court jester of this entire movie uh hence the name and then there's some there's there's great things and shenanigans uh it's very campy it's silly it's a whole lot of fun lots of songs and dances um so this film by vic Schoen, he's an industry great this guy uh worked with bob hope bing crosby patty page pat boone many more um he also helped irving berlin after this film came out he helped uh him score uh another bing crosby danny kate classic musical white christmas another one of my favorite films of all time okay, yeah white christmas white i christmas. have heard of and seen absolutely well i mean that's uh when i learned that information i was like oh yeah you can totally hear the white christmas in uh the score of this film um so showin was he was self-taught to play big band music um in this film again very first film score ever done um and he was not wow. yeah i know we keep we keep getting these guys that are like i'm just gonna score this movie and it's and it's a great and score it's gonna it's be an incredible like, score in this movie that's like iconic and remembered forever right exactly i mean a little less so for sadly for this movie not unlike t2 uh but like this movie still has like a heart it, it has a place in the hearts and minds of lots of people i mean it has like lots of prominent pop culture references i about lost my shit one time when i heard this movie re referenced in the old school mystery science theater uh just like an offshoot reference it was like an inside joke and I was like, that was written just for me. Because, like, I'm the only person in the room that's seen this movie. <laughs> Very nice. But, yeah, so, again, it's uh, it's really interesting because, uh, so, there's some wonderful songs in this movie, as you heard from our intro music. Uh, so, basically, uh, just, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, just, like, the links to all this, because... Uh, sadly, we haven't had like a full, like, you know, like a big restoration of the score or anything. I'm just like pulling these clips that are just the rips of the DVD on YouTube. Like, I mean, I was looking online. I was like, oh, I could get, I could get the soundtrack on vinyl if I wanted. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like really a, a, a well sought after, you know, score or piece of music. So, um, so a lot of these have like, you know, the action that's going on in screen for, uh, the YouTube videos. And so basically that first song is like the title card. So, uh, basically Danny Kay is breaking the fourth wall. He's singing to us like with, and he's interacting with, I'll, I'll have you watch the video, uh, whenever we're done, but like he's having us he's interacting with the title like graphics. So he's like standing and he's like manipulating the text of the, of the credits as they roll on screen. And he's like singing to us about the movie we're about to watch. Nice. So, uh, meta is, has been in since the 1950s and I'm all for it. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one one piece of music I definitely wanted to highlight from this film, uh, besides that first title song, is uh, basically there's this really great key piece of score uh, that has like a lot of great stuff uh, into it. Uh, basically, Danny Kaye's character, he becomes hypnotized to become one of the greatest sword fighters of all time. Uh, this is just the plot of this movie. Hypnotized to yep. become man. This sounded like such a deeply <laughs> political film, and now I'm convinced it's like a like just a, like a kind of 
bonkers off the wall. It is a nutty comedy, but it's wonderful. So basically, he has uh, he's being hypnotized to be this incredible sword fighter, and the music that undercuts the uh, the sword fight scene is is really really incredible. So one thing I just want to make a note for our keen-eared listeners is the fact that um, because there's been no restored soundtrack for this movie, these all are clips from YouTube, and yeah, there's sounds of sword fighting and people talking, and there are lines delivered over the score, but I think... Honestly, uh, to help you uh, understand what's going on in the film and why like this piece of music like really helps tell the story, um, it actually really works for this case. I try and pull like clips that aren't you know don't have like people talking over them and stuff. But for a movie this old that no one really remembers, sadly, uh, it's it's just one of those things. It's like par for the course. Hey, hey, it's all about the dramatic cool. impact, and I feel like I'm watching it. Awesome. Well, that's what we aim for here on uh, soundtrack. So here we go. 1956's The Chord Jester. <laughs> Years of swine, chicken gizzards soaked in brine on your feet. Be not afraid, you're the greatest with the blade. Black Fox, will you? At this very moment, my dear Ravenhurst, your life isn't worth that! particularly like about this section of the film score you know it's fairly brassy generic swashbuckling music until we get to Griselda the witch that you know you know that hypnotizes Danny Kaye's character um, into being kind of like this Errol Flynn like character I mean I'm just curious for you because I've seen this movie I can't even tell you how many times do you have any observations because like I mean you even mentioned to it I was like hey this part of the score is really cool you know off air and you're like yeah yeah and you you seemed like there was a change. I don't know if you have yeah, anything to say about well, that. Well, obviously, when when the the snap of the fingers happens, yes. and the score speeds up 
significantly. Uh, the, the piano comes in. Yes. Uh, I really, really like the way they use the piano. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Score. There are higher stakes. Yes, it feels like exactly. Higher stakes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So in that section specifically has a lot of Mickey Mousing. So that's like a, that's a film term. Mickey Mousing means synchronized or either mirrored or parallel scoring. It's a film technique that means you're like syncing the accompanying music with the actions on screen. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're matching, like you're really, I mean, of course you're trying to, all film scores are trying to evoke the mood and enhance the tone of the film. But this is like literally, I am matching the movement with the music. Um, so when Hawkins, Danny Kaye's character, is proving his swash, swashbuckling prowess, um, this is enhanced by the the music, specifically like that harpsichord piano in the background. Um, it's com- extremely precise. So it moves from this really like bold, like obnoxious brass that's like this very generic swashbuckling music. And then it moves into this like precise harpsichord um, and then which is like you know cued by that snapping of of Danny Kaye's fingers um no it's snapping by Griselda's fingers but yeah it's just uh I just love that particular section because I mean it's super fun yeah it's really fun it, it really uh highlights I mean because you know in a musical it's kind of hard to find sections of the score that's like uh, this person isn't singing you know um but I did want to you know, note this because Vic Schoen himself in an interview said that that was that specific piece of music, having never scored a film before, not even like aware of the techniques of like, I have to watch the movie while the orchestra plays. Like he had to teach himself all of that wow. when composing the score for this oh, wow. film. Yeah. So like he was basically teaching himself on the job to like, just do this job. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so he was the most proud. He said that was like one of the highlights of his entire like 80 year career career he lived forever that's too super cool it sounds uh, like he learns a lot he learned a lot on the job absolutely cool. yeah yeah that's and that's one of my favorite things about uh film scores is like how they can convey a story and a tone and a mood they can support all the action that's being depicted on screen um and so even though that was extremely uh self-indulgent i hope you and the audience and the ether there have learned something today and that you're going to go out on amazon prime and like rent you could, that's where you can rent it if you don't want to the buy court it uh, the court jester uh, it's it's so worth your time it's it's hilarious it, it never gets old well, i'll tell you what that's a new movie i hadn't heard about before perfect so I, I am into see it. that's that's what we hear that's what we're here to do is we're broadening minds we're expanding horizons here on uh, soundtrack and the cinematic schematic um well we're actually going to leave this 1956 musical for a bit of a change of scenery um it's a bit of a complete tonal shift actually um because this is just kind of like a grab bag episode um I honestly don't feel like it needs any introduction at all. So I'm just going to go right into this song. Just okay. just hold on. Just okay. just hold on to your butts, Caleb. Okay. Just get ready cuz like it's surprises. It's it's a great surprise.
Caleb, name that tune and that movie. I uh, don't know the song, but I can tell you it's like the stalker Michael Myers theme yep. from It Follows. Boom. One of my favorite uh, sound pieces of the last like 10 years at least. Yes, correct. From 2015, we have the score written by Disaster Piece for Ro- David Robert Mitchell's It Follows. Uh, that was the first track off the soundtrack, a song entitled Heels, because remember, she's like walking down, she has her heels right. in her hand. As you can recall, if you've seen the film, the first sequence at the top of the movie really sets the scene for the rest of the motion picture. One thing that I actually really like is how this, to me, this particular song is almost like a modern take on like the Bernard Herman psycho violence. <laughs> psycho thing i mean that was for a very specific moment you know those beats of you know the stabbing the shower you know and then it's done it's maybe no more than 15 seconds but this you have like that high-paced screechy metallic i don't even know if it's a violin or whatever that synthesized sound and, and that's like going for almost that entire first track yeah i don't feel bad saying that the not main character dies in like the first song it it gets you to this like build up of tension of being chased and not being no not knowing what you're being chased by Man, that that is one of my favorite things about that movie is it's you ever have one of those dreams where you feel like you're just running away from something you can't escape from yeah like this movie really captures that and the soundtrack i think is really really key to that and i'll also say uh, about the soundtrack in this film is i think it really kick-started i mean this was kind of the forerunner for or all of this crazy retro synth sounds we get in film scores and on TV shows like Stranger Things now. Because, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I there were I mean, Drive as a movie. There were there are other movies doing it, but I feel like since It Follows came out, we've seen a huge wave sure. of like, heavy synth throwback to the '80s horror movies, '80s soundtracks, all that good stuff. Right. This film makes me thankful personally because it's a risky horror film that has fascinating social commentary piece, and then it, like how you were saying about like the aesthetic and the soundtrack that ended up being wildly influential two years down the line um because yeah i mean we have drive which does have i mean it has its original music and it has its you know like kind of original aesthetic but i don't i i would say i would agree with you caleb that it follows is kind of a turning point for where we ended up going because even drive like drive has like even um in in like some composed like original music right. for the film right like this one is like this is this is it like this is it this is stranger things like yeah (laughs) no and it sounds like that for basically the rest of the movie and and it totally 100 percent fits it's a throwback to that old school john carpenter sound that we used to get with the michael myers halloween theme things i've learned from other podcasts because i uh as far as you know recording i love to record but i love to listen to um john carpenter is a really big fan of gaming as a storytelling medium as a person that loves using like the mechanism of story telling to tell a unique story and like the fact that he acknowledges gaming can tell unique stories that transcend the medium that can't be told in film like that just like makes my little nerd heart explode it's great because so few filmmakers get that oh my god so few few. and it's sad well i think you raised a good point though i think what's interesting about john carpenter is that 
it, you, you, that that is not a bridge too far because he loves electronic sounds. He loves he's done it with his composing and his music for years and years and years. So it's it's interesting to see how because of kind of his predisposal to like electronic music that he's really embraced video games as their own medium. Yeah, absolutely. So let's that is talk a whole about other podcast, soundtracks. Alex. So soundtracks <laughs> about soundtracks. So the entire soundtrack for it follows, written by Richard Vreeland, which is the name of the man behind Disasterpiece. It's an incredible auditory aesthetic. Again, I'm a sucker for chip tunes and video game scores. So uh, we're gonna have to keep moving on. It follows all the films I picked this month. I realize have really good title slash opening tracks with like they they really establish this prominent and fantastic central theme that gets kind of carried throughout the rest of the film um so if i didn't include the following song in our discussion of it follows i'd be totally wrong so next is the title song from it follows uh again composed by disaster beast <laughs> Disasterpiece brought us back in with that song. This is the title song that pumps that end credit whenever it snaps after they're, you know, oh God, I was about to spoil the entire movie. Don't, so don't spoil it. I'm not going to spoil the entire movie. There's a sequence with people walking and that's what all I'll say there. Uh, anyway, it's wonderful. As we were kind of talking about off air, uh, Disasterpiece did some video game scores, which I am I'm a huge proponent of video game uh, as a medium and of course as a soundtrack type of venture. So Disasterpiece scored Fez, and then the director of the film heard, like, played Fez and was like, oh, I'll have that guy score my movie. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. That's my thing when I become a famous director. I'm going to have Toby Fox score uh, my first movie. Uh, hell yeah. So that's, hell I yes. mean, I'm going to do the same thing, so that's fine. That's just setting it up. <laughs> um, so 
specifically about this song though this particular track reminds me of the feeling i get when i watch halloween or friday the 13th um and the fact that a piece of music can like leave me with a feeling i get when i watch other films i mean that in itself is kind of incredible I actually found this really fantastic article whenever I uh, was just, I, I don't know, even know what like search terms I typed in. It was probably like film score emotions. And it brought up this perfect article. Um, it basically discusses music and emotion uh, from a film perspective. Um, and it's by this man named Joel Doeck. He cites like stuff by neurologists and like how it how film scores and music actually affect the brain chemistry whenever you're listening to a piece of music and you're seeing things occur on screen like what what is happening in your brain so when like that the happens? Science behind yeah, it. exactly. Very cool. So this whole article examines the role that film the film composer has in his task to convey these complex sets of emotions and communicate with uh, like immediacy and universality that like transcend language which that's one of my favorite things about scores in itself and how music can transcend like literal physical language you know we can be above these language barriers and use you know music as a way to communicate we can communicate feelings and thoughts and ideas and that and that's one thing that if we were to put on a movie now in japanese or something Mm -hmm. and we just saw what occurred on screen uh we would be able to you know generally follow what was going on because we could hear the score we could know you know if someone was in a relationship with someone if it's happy or sad like we can understand that i mean of course of course, there's like lots of cultural nuance. Of course, there's things that we're, you know, not, we can't fully understand because we're not of a certain culture, you know, how they convey, uh, you know, their musical like motifs and stereotypes and, and that kind of archetypal sound. But I think music as a universal language is so fascinating. Yeah. And just like how film can also be a universal language. I mean, even if we have to translate it and put subtitles on it, we can still get at the underlying issues of, you know, love and hate and revenge and war and happiness and sadness. Yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about music, too, is it conveys emotion, I think, more clearly than any other form of uh, art. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess visual art is pretty powerful. But, like, for me personally, there's something about when you hear certain tunes or certain melodies. I mean, like, you, you talk about uh, watching a, a, a Japanese film. When I listen to a Japanese score... My brain goes to very specific places because the, the the scores are very good at conveying certain emotions and certain themes. And even though those themes not might be might not be super obvious when you're just kind of passively listening, when you're really doing a close listen to that stuff, uh, I I think yeah, music in a lot of ways conveys emotion and themes and ideas a lot more clearly than even visual media. Yeah, no, and that's the thing is because it it gets piped. The fact that it gets piped directly to your brain. uh, My mom has this wonderful story. uh, The first time she ever put a pair of headphones on with her very first Walkman. Oh, man. uh, And she said that that experience in itself, and this is something, you know, that us millennials and younger, younger people, anyone that's of our era we take for granted, but she said the first time she put on a pair of headphones, she like, she was dumbfounded because the fact that it was playing this music directly, it felt like directly in her brain. Like the, the, the idea that this sound is being broadcast directly from the source into the way your brain interprets it. I think right. that it, it, to me, 
I could go down a really big rabbit hole about that, but it, I think that's so really No, but it's like it's right there. And yeah. if, especially if you're just like sitting and listening to it, like it just really connects with your your soul in, in a way that I don't think, you know, just media, uh, visual media can do. And that's why film scores are so important. Exactly. I mean, they they can under, they can uh, support themes. They can tell you, they can actually tell you like contradictory messages about what's going on on screen to like perhaps convey like, uh, it's like, oh, maybe something isn't right here even though everything looks perfect you right. know on screen right. like the, you, you know if that's the director's intent huh Whew, so cool we're we're nerding out with you because we know you're also nerds so like we're i'm, I'm glad Guys. we're we're feeling the love right now and just really really appreciating it so any final thoughts before we leave it follows and hope they're like not following us oh god <laughs> i need to check who is the last person i never mind um so oh, uh, no, uh, I just really want to go out and buy this on vinyl. Yeah, I mean, I have it on vinyl. I I've bought it for other people on vinyl. It's a fantastic gift if you want to do that. So that's one other thing. Like you were saying, how it really gets at this idea of is this in the 80s or is this not in the 80s? And like that conversation of this is modern day, but like the idea of kind of like almost being nostalgic for the present Dude, moment isn't it great crazy though because it, it feels like you're living in someone's dream and that's what's yeah. brilliant about it because they have all this modern day technology the cars are all contemporary but there's something about the visual style yeah uh, the, the style. score yeah well uh, i mean they have these like old wood panel tvs yes. and like and so they have like this conversation with some of this tech because it, it's like set in detroit so it's like you know you have this crumbling city around them and you have some of this like really high-tech stuff like the seashell like e-reader phone thing so you have that and then you also have like that with these like wood panel tvs and you have like the you know some of these like old like appliances and like these hairstyles and like i don't know it's just having this really great conversation with about like what nostalgia is and like having a conversation with the 80s but also modernizing it and that's like the kind of movies that i think are so fascinating and i just want to i I want to see more like thoughtful well yeah i think that because that's that i think that's a more interesting study of our nostalgic culture we're in right now rather than just like just like a full yeah exactly a ripoff or something that just throws pop culture references in for the sake of going oh that's cool it's like no no no. we're taking the stylistic idea and we're taking the style and the ideas that we were really uh, obsessed with in the 80s and applying it in a modern day context which i think is really fascinating yeah and, and like again haven't finished stranger things yet because i'm trying to savor the experience but i did notice and like wow they had a higher budget for season two because they could use like fucking ghostbusters like so much and they use ghostbusters like the the theme cues and like the like the names the licensing and then of course i don't know i think it's all that kfc money because man they love them some kentucky fried chicken and stranger things (laughs) yep okay so then also kfc and then also like some of the music cues like i was like i don't actually remember in season one them having music that was contemporary for the day like oh i'm in a car they're playing a song on the radio kind of stuff like the you know like um talking heads or devo or right. uh you know the i don't even know what the band does uh talking in your sleep that's a really good one another good you know very stereotypical 80s song but yeah it's it's interesting their budget was a lot higher for getting some of that licensing to like fully insert you into the era of the 1980s i think there's no better way to close the show uh this film was a toss-up 
uh, with one of my other favorite films of all time. But I want to keep it spicy and fresh. So we have to talk about 1984's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I'm into it. I am so into it, but holy shit, did not see that one coming. <laughs> good pick. Yep. Holy shit, thank you. This is good anime picture. Pick. I know, I know. And I thought this would get at your ba- fanboy heart, it Caleb. Does. It does. So uh, this this film is basically perfect, and so is the score. Uh, composed by Joe Hizashi, Miyazaki's chosen composer for every single feature he's done, except for his first. Joe Hizashi presents... Uh, possesses a stylistically distinct sound. Um, his music has been known to explore and incorporate different genres, including like a minimalist genre, experimental like, electronic, European classical styles, Japanese classical styles. Um, and the synthesis of all these styles is what makes his his unique scoring uh, such a treasure. And I think the Nausicaa soundtrack is no exception on this that forefront. This movie came out at a really interesting time. Here's the thing I, I love about anime. J- Japan, I mean, in Asian cultures, J- China, Japan, Korea in general, is they have a different history than us. And I mean, and, and it's only recently that it's kind of merged over uh, into Western history where, where, where there's some like similar events. But what I, I find interesting is that they are the only country to experience the dropping of bomb on them. And that actually had a crazy, ridiculous impact on that, that country's view of war and violence. Uh, and I think, I mean, Miyazaki's film especially, those themes of, of violence and peace and what, you know, why go to war? Like, those themes are all run really deeply in his films. And I, I would say the same about his uh, scores as well. I'm really excited to hear what pieces you picked from this particular yeah, absolutely. So Zachary, my uh, boyfriend, he gave me this specific copy of the Nausicaa soundtrack for my birthday. What? Um, it's a Japanese import, actually. So, Dude, so boyfriend of the year. You're actually hearing something that's a little bit exclusive uh, here to not toot my own horn for a second because I have this CD. I couldn't find any clips of the quality that I wanted to play or of the full songs on YouTube. So I had to just rip my physical CD and then like, we're going to do it through um, a different medium. So, Hey, enjoy this little slice of uh, the slice of Miyazaki that you wouldn't be able to hear unless you imported the soundtrack. First, I'm going to play the first sound from the soundtrack, which establishes one of the film's most prominent motifs uh, musically. Uh, We hear it later reinterpreted in very different genre and stylistic expressions that, like I discussed earlier, Um, he likes to reinterpret his motifs throughout, you know, the films he's scoring for. Mm -hmm. Um, So we hear it first via piano, but then we hear it synth again later. So this is the first sound off the soundtrack, 1984's Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind composed by Joe Hiyashi. This is called Opening.
So, Caleb, your thoughts on that one? Alex, I'm so happy you chose a Jibway score. I'm a huge Jibway fan. And For sure. Something about Miyazaki's scores, specifically this film, which has such a, a deep tie to like war and the, the senselessness of war uh, and really alludes, heavily alludes to the, the, the consequences of a nuclear fallout because this is technically set in a fantasy world mm-hmm. post-nuclear fallout. And something about this, it's, it's very bittersweet and somber. It doesn't put huge giant grin on my face but it does like make my heart feel warm on the yeah. inside I'm like, I'm like i feel oh, yeah. i feel good like it's it's like things are sad sometimes but you know what like people come together and i always think of the credits of that movie um to which i believe is a similar or at least a rendition of that song is played yeah. where you see kind of like all these people come back together after all of the consequences of the film they all come back together spoilers for oh uh, my god yeah spoilers for the film but uh where all these different groups who come together and try to reconcile their their differences and start, you know, building and making peace and building civilization. Like, it's that kind of thing. Like, oh, things have been rough. But for some reason, like, I'm comforted by, like, and hopeful. Yeah. No, that's 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 a real sensation when listening to that particular track. I, I mean, the wistfulness with the fact that there may be hope. And, and that's, I mean, to me, that almost epitomizes more of real life than just like a, a purely negative point of view or a purely positive point of, point of view. It's more of like a mix between the two. You know, there are happy days and sad days, but at the end of the day, you, it's this synthesis of the two that make up your days here on right, this planet right um god it's so good isn't it great isn't it great and it, and it goes back to what you were talking about we were talking about just before about it follows like the um, the number of emotions that are conveyed through the, and the moods that are conveyed through this this one piece are i mean just runs so deeply like it makes yeah. you feel all these things in like a, the, the span of like 30 seconds right yeah and i know that uh we got off on this uh small tangent about uh you know foreign films and i think that's another you know really good perspective on this film uh how like these ideas you know of course it was written in this original you know originally japanese language and all that but they transcend and of course they you know they've been dubbed into english and all this stuff but even then these with the assistance of the score these concepts transcend any cultural barriers that were originally um depicted just because we aren't japanese right yeah, oh, God. I mean, I, so good. It, it'd, be, it'd be super interesting to talk to someone from Japan who watched this film when it came out because Fuck, this is, yeah, this is God. like, this oh, is like forty years after the bomb was dropped. Oh. And, and, you know, for listeners out there, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, the reason I like I specifically for Miyazaki, but especially this film, like the the dropping of the bomb is very. Oh, it's it, yeah, it's, it's, it's clear. It's a part of the movie. Yeah. I, I think I would love to talk to someone. What were the emotions they felt when they watched this for the first time? I think it's 1984. I believe is the year yep. this film came out mm-hmm. um, because it. I mean, it means a lot to me, an American in Western culture in 2017. So what would that mean to someone in that country in the 80s? Just because, like, yeah, such a complex Yeah, it's so history. close. I yeah. mean, just think of 40 years. 40 years from today, what is that? Is that the 90s? No, it's the 80s. Right? 40, 40 years from the 1984? No, 40 years of from, 2017. Math 2000, 2057. No, 40 years in reverse. So, like, that's... The oh, odds, backwards. So the odds, nineties, eighties, seventies, seventies, yeah. So S- 70, I mean, 77. Just, Star Wars. We are the same distance from Star Wars as they were at the distance of the, from the bomb. The bomb. Oh shit! Well, see, that's the, that's what's crazy though. There were people who were born when the bomb was dropped. Yeah. 
who were probably in their their late forties or early fifties when this movie came out. Yeah, Miyazaki's among them too. I mean, that guy. Oh, I mean, yeah, he's a contemporary. I know the right. wind. Uh, the wind rises. I mean, I know that was like his a... was his last film, but no longer is his last. <laughs> Hashtag film. N- not last film. Yeah, last yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, um, I, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point, Alex. Yeah. Oh God. So we're gonna keep this Miyazaki love train going. Um, yeah, because why not? We have this really great print of the score, so we gotta listen to it, right? Um, so here's track two from Nausicaa, which is one of my favorite songs on the entire album because it's so addicting to listen to. It's the full synth version of Stampede of the Omu, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, the stampeding uh, bug creatures. The Omu uh, are like the giant bugs who, again, exactly. have like evolved. They're like the product of nuclear radiation over like generations and generations and generations of bugs. Yeah, so uh, here is that uh, section of uh, the Stampede of the Omu, track two from Joe Hizashi's Nausicaa soundtrack. things about this specific soundtrack and the print that I have so I have this Japanese import um, is the fact that each quote track seems to be at least three different soundtrack cues smashed together Um, so uh, with the previously listened to song, uh, th- we have at least three major cues. Uh, the middle cue is the synth-driven like stampede of the Omu. Um, and then we have like the front piece, which Caleb was saying that was her in the flowers right. at the beginning. And then I don't even know what that end piece is, uh, the where it switches to kind of this Arabic 
style. Yeah, desert. Uh, it, it reminds you of like a desert theme. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I figured that, uh, so I thought about originally when writing the show notes, like just sampling that specific Omu, uh, you know, cue, but then I figured it might be like a nice way to showcase the fact that, um, he actually does do a good job of containing different cultural influences within his entire soundtrack. Right. So we have like some more, so we're the front of the song is like kind of this more Western sounding music box, little segment. And then we go into this like synth breakneck, like little body slam into the, like the Omu segment. And then we have this kind of Eastern, Eastern Indian sound uh, to this kind that ending piece, which I, I can't even remember the specific cue for what they, what was transpiring in that specific section, but that like specific motif of that kind of more, um, Eastern Indian sounding, uh, section like does come up frequently throughout the soundtrack. And, and like, uh, again, I haven't seen this film in a, a year plus. So I, again, it's so worth a rewatch, but I definitely need to, I will need to draw, jog that memory bank. It's worth, it's worth jogging your memory for, you know, my biggest takeaway from this is a couple of things, like just how influential the, like early Miyazaki scores were on video games, because, uh, all of those remind me of very specific cues in other video games that came decades after Nausicaa, the Wind Valley. Um, but I mean, I also think you raise a great point, Alex. It does really, ray, uh, really highlight different cultures. And I think that's one thing Miyazaki does really, really well is yes, he's from Japan. Yes, he has a very Japanese perspective in his films. Uh, however, he also very much embraces other cultures and other ideas and other types of music and other types of art in his films. And especially with the film fantasy based on the concept of hey nuclear war happened we were all wiped out here's the world three generations later i think he's less interested in the japanese perspective and i think that actually shines through in the score yeah and that's so interesting to me because the, the you know an island nation you know may have more proclivity for being more a little more isolationist you know but like the fact that a filmmaker wants to reach out out of his own, yeah. you know, co- you know his own comfort, his own culture, and um, interact with these other cultures. I think that's, it, it reminds me a lot of Akira Kurosawa, uh, who in Japan actually didn't have quite as much notoriety as like one would think because he was too Western westernized yeah. for the Japanese whenever Just bonkers because here in America he's like he's one like, of the most influential like, filmmakers yeah ever. it's like you know you use like Akira Kurosawa samurais like boom you know and so you only have this really purely Japanese association but I mean Akira Kurosawa had like a lot of conversation like not like real conversations, but like his films had thematic conversations with, you know, Martin Scorsese films, you know, like that is so present, you know, Westerns. Like, I mean, that was all within his works. And that's why some of the Japanese did reject his films as being too Westernized. Right. He definitely was very influenced by Western, Western culture, Western filmmaking and storytelling. I mean, because the Western genre was a huge influence on his- Oh yeah, yeah. Not uh, just the West. (laughs) Actual old school Western films were a big influence 
influence on Akira Kurosawa, which is really interesting because Akira Kurosawa, then the way culture works is because it came back to influence, I mean, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, all these like oh, prolific yeah. filmmakers. Yeah, and that, that exchange uh, to me is one of the most exciting things about uh, kind of like that more globalized perspective on culture and filmmaking is that um, people from different points of view from different societies can, you know, talk together and then they can bring back their takeaways to their own individual culture. And then people that, you know, kind of become their contemporaries can then have a similar conversation. And then the fact that we can keep having a dialogue that maybe bridges gaps between misunderstandings and differences. It's so powerful. Right. Well, and that leads to films like we see in Nausicaa, which is a film that is more or less embracing pacifism and, hey, why are we... I mean, and and really just questioning what is it we're fighting over is it really worth it i mean especially i mean they have it in the context of a a post post apocalyptic society where the resources are so limited and they don't have to be fighting free against each other but they choose to do it just because it's kind of an ingrained human nature and he's really interested in asking those those same questions that i think um are were really on his mind and, and coming out of the japanese culture in the 1980s i think is really relevant yeah oh, incredible Oh, well, uh, last but certainly not least is the song that will close us out today. Uh, here is track 12, uh, Nausicaa's Requiem from Nausicaa, the Valley, the Wind soundtrack, uh, composed again by Joe Hiyashi. It's fairly iconic, and as soon as I push play, you will know why. Ooh. <laughs> show for this week as always please rate and review the cinematic schematic on itunes i mean that helps people hear our show tune in have conversations with us about movies drop me or caleb a line on social media to talk to us about what movies or soundtracks you're thankful for i'm alex v brohannon on instagram or brohannon on twitter as always we're soundtrack and we look forward to trekking again. Oh, next month when we're talking about misunderstood movie monsters. Damn, gonna be, it's gonna that's, be, that's gonna be great. It's gonna I'm, be topic. I'm, I'm, already, to I'm already boiling up a, a misunderstood movie monster brew. I can't uh, wait to hear what you mon- think. Monster parties. Thank you so much again for tuning into Soundtrack this month. And the show isn't over yet. Coming up next, I'll be talking with published author, public speaker, and a historian of modern conservatism, religion, and race in America, Bobby Griffith, about how the friendships of the Enterprise crew and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan impacted the most formative years of his life. Stay tuned.
face a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Welcome it's to the five-year mission of the SAS, the Cinematic world. Schematic, where to I interview new one life, of this month's future contributors at thecinematropolis.com. To boldly go where no man has gone before. And we couldn't get far without talking about Star Trek. I think it holds a very special place in a lot of our lives. And uh, earlier this month, uh, OU professor, local Oklahoma historian, and Star Trek enthusiast Bobby Griffith wrote an essay about his personal experiences with Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. Bobby, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Thanks for having me. Firstly, uh, thanks again for contributing to the website. Sure. Uh, I was really glad to finally hear you go full nerd on Star Trek, but you're definitely like one of the most savvy Star Trek people I've, I know. So uh, very excited to get you to write a uh, personal experience going all the way back to your childhood about the film. I actually, before we get really into the Star Trek, can you tell me a little bit about your life when you first encountered Star Trek? Sure. It was as a very young boy visiting my great grandfather who lived in a small, what we would call shack, I guess the hipster term could be tiny house today, uh, but it was a small place. He was a poor man, and we would go visit him on Wednesdays uh, because my family was a family that scheduled things like that. We'd go visit him on Wednesdays, and right after the uh, 5.30 news, I believe, before they did 5, 5.30 and 6, the uh, NBC affiliate would show uh, reruns of the original series Star Trek, and so I became familiar with that universe uh, mythology sitting on the little uh, twin bed that also served as a couch if you would go uh, visit my great-grandfather. Very cool. So it was a big kind of sort of a family event, or at least between you and your great-grandfather. It was a big bonding thing. Uh, not an intentional bonding thing. It, uh, it was more background. You know, when you're a little kid, visiting someone who's in their 70s is not the most exciting thing, uh, especially uh, when everything reeks of cigarette smoke <laughs> and booze. But we would watch it together. I don't want to over-romanticize it, but that is that is really where I encountered it. And then it just stuck with me. Later, after we got a VCR, which those were things that you could watch and record things with. What, so what, what, did, what did that mean? You had to rewind them? Was that right? You had to rewind them. <laughs> and uh, you had to program them uh, each time you wanted to record something. Uh, but I would record Star Trek, the original series, and The Next Generation in, in my teen years or preteen years and would watch it all the time. So what about Star Trek drew you to the voyages and adventures of the Enterprise, like themes or characters? things of that nature. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great question. Uh, obviously, Star Trek is not very action-oriented, so we can't say the action. I do think in the original series, there is good chemistry between Leonard Nimoy, Shatner, and... Uh, 
DeForest Kelly. I think they had great chemistry. But really, as someone with a very hyperactive imagination uh, and, you know, growing up in the time period that was almost peak science fiction, the original Star Wars trilogy and then Star Trek coming back in cinematic form, Alien, Predator, uh, all of these science science fiction oriented movies. uh, If you're not into, uh, you know, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic science fiction like Terminator, you know, Star Trek is more utopian science fiction. So everyone is equal. Um, Growing up, uh, this is more reflection, you know, many years later, growing up, you know, kind of lower middle class. The idea of full equality economically appealed to me, although I realize it more now than I did then. The idea of peace and also, too, uh, Star Trek is more of a thinking person's science fiction. And so it was always more complicated. The plots were rich and the chemistry was good. And it opened up a world of possibility in a positive way, sort of progress, I guess. It's very noteworthy because especially now it seems like all science fiction is post-apocalyptic dystopian right. future. So I think that's one thing I think still sets Star Trek apart today even is, hey, look, the future, things got better. I mean, it got a little worse, but it got better. And, and we were able to conquer these issues that were problems that were in front of us we were able to conquer them especially after our failed experiment with genetically modified human beings (laughs) (laughs) it's Um, supposed to happen soon right it's 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 we're on the verge i mean here's the thing too like between uh human the human reproduction like cloning and ai the the, ai is really scary actually like it's uh yeah we're we're definitely getting in that uh in that realm scary stuff but you know star trek represents one where we were able to work with bots and right. able to advance and go into space to find new worlds. So, no, I think that's a great point. Now, one thing you mentioned, too, was there was kind of a, a little bit of a backdrop you had with the, the Soviet Union. Right. Do you think like the, the show when you were watching it at the time or the things that were in the original series really stuck with you because of like that historical context? Yeah. So watching it, you know, 84, 85 and, you know, around that time period, there was a real sense in which you still felt that war could break out between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, even as a little boy. Um, we lived near Tinker Air Force Base. And so one of the, you know, one of the uh, rumors that always was around or cultural legends was if the Soviet Union attacks because Tinker has the AWACS, which is the main radar communication uh, ship uh, or plane nuclear bombs will hit Oklahoma City and so you grow up hearing that as a four five and six year old and then you see you know Gorbachev is in the news every night um, he would be on the news every night when I would watch uh, World News Report with Peter Jennings um, on ABC then seeing that juxtaposition of the Federation and the Klingons and you know just hearing stories of a family that grew up in the you know 1950s and 60s it was it was obvious. I wonder too if that might be one of the things that seems to be missing uh, in the newer in the reboots is that uh, tension that you felt when you would uh, the, the few episodes they had Klingons, but then especially uh, Star Trek Three, and it's it's right there. Star Trek Six is sort of the. Uh, 
you know, the end of the Cold War uh, and, and all the Cold War references in it, particularly Spock. Only Nixon could go to China. Um, <laughs> but really, that's this cultural backdrop. And then and then even too looking back and in the 1980, early 1980s, watching the episode where uh, Kirk and Uhura kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, being someone who did not really know any people of color, seeing that uh, in a way that was uh, just on TV. And, and even in the ni- early 1980s, that was not interracial love, was not something uh, you saw represented. And, and to think that that happened in the 1960s. Isn't that mind-blowing? mind-blowing. I, 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 th- I feel like it took – like the show was like 30 years ahead of its time in a lot of in, ways. In many ways, yeah. You have mentioned a few of your favorite episodes in the essay. Uh, yeah, have any in, in particular that you'd like to mention? You think uh, listeners might need to, to, if they haven't watched Star Trek or need to refresh, what episodes they should go back to? My favorite thing in the Trek universe is, uh, this is weird, is probably time the time travel episodes. Yes. We're sitting on the edge of forever. Mm, yeah. Obviously, I mean, that won a Saturn Award. Um, then the other one where they go back into the 1960s, the name of the episode escapes me. Uh, where they're trying to, where they encounter another time traveler and all of the shenanigans. But one episode that I've watched quite a bit, and it's a silly episode, uh, a piece of the action where they, where they land, where they explore a, a civilization that has built its entire um, cultural structures around 1920s prohibition era American gangster literature. <laughs> and it's, it's a comical episode and there are Thompson machine guns and gang shootings and fedoras and, and, and three piece suits. And it's, it's just a fun, fun sort of episode. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I myself am a huge sucker for time travel stories. Oh, time so, great. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, just all all of the the, the types of stories you can tell, uh, and I think that answers that question because everyone at some point regrets something in their life, right? So it's yeah. and even as a, as a nation, like, what if we could go back in time and do blank? Wouldn't that make everything better? And I think right. Star Trek does a really great job at exploring kind of even the consequence of that thought when you right. follow it through. In your essay, uh, you mentioned the first film, Star Trek: The Original Motion Picture, sure. before talking about Wrath of Khan, which I think. You know, Wrath of Khan is the focal point of the essay, but I do want to talk a little bit about what drew you to Khan over the original motion picture. Yeah, because I state that I've probably seen it well over 200 times. <laughs> Star Trek, the motion picture, I mean, this is something that, that people have written about uh, about that era. So in Star Trek, the motion picture, they try to recapture a lot of what was in the original series, um, that sort of slow-paced, very little action, thinking person's narrative. Uh, I liked the idea of the uh, satellite Voyager becoming self-aware and becoming V'ger, and and that's an interesting twist toward the end. But it just moved too slow. Gotcha. And coming out at the same time as Star Wars, which was not called A New Hope until like the 90s, it's Star Wars. So uh, George Lucas retconned his whole series? Yes. Star Wars. Um, you know, as a four or five-year-old, seeing that kind of, oh, here's this fast-paced action versus here's this very slow-moving thing and when you see the original series some of the things they toss in star trek the motion picture just don't make sense like wow we have rehabbed the enterprise and suddenly it's very difficult even to hit warp factor one when in the original series 
it's not difficult. And so they sort of over-dramatize some of the aspects, at least in my opinion. The, the original motion picture kind of playing to the beats that you were less interested in from the series in, yeah. the, in the film. Now, Rathacon, though, obviously that was a film that was reacting to Star Wars. and even, right. But it was, so it was interesting. I didn't learn this until I saw the recent Fathom event interview with Shatner. So they were trying to compete directly with Star Wars, but their budget got like they had a fraction of the budget slashed. I, I, I mean, that's like the I think it was something like really small, like 16 million, some yeah. really tiny number. I couldn't believe they made the film, you know, on such a low budget, especially compared to the first film, which was like, I think, a massive budget film. So what about Wrath of Khan really got you excited? Besides the continuity era of Chekhov, which drives me crazy every time I see it because he was not in the episode Space Seed, yet somehow Khan knows his face because he never forgets a face. Uh, you know, just the typical themes of basic good human storytelling, revenge, um, friendship. I think the friendship is evident uh, particularly over the motion picture it is clear um the deep abiding friendship that made uh the original series so special between uh, kirk spock and mccoy uh it's more evident in that um opening up with the kobayashi maru and then whoa is spock dead who knows the awesome almost pro wrestler way that Shatner enters in as Captain Kirk with the light behind him in the shadow uh, and, and I mean Shatner's at his most what I would call shattastic in that movie beyond the typical con uh, scream but Shatner had a twinkle in his eye good comedic pace it felt more like Kirk was Kirk um you know, saying things like, I don't believe in the no-win scenario and getting put in danger in the way that they do. And uh, that continuity with the original series, reintroducing Khan and his crew, but also sort of retconning even um, a continuity with you know, a relationship with Dr. Carol Marcus. And so you still felt that it had this connection to the original show more so, I believe, uh, than uh, the motion picture did. Um, and it just threw you into a story. Right. Um, instead of taking a long time to build up and say, here's the narrative. Instead, you get thrown in it quickly. And there's more more humanity to it. Um, I think the closing lines, too, uh, when Kirk says at Spock's funeral, of all the souls I've encountered, his was the most human. Oh. Uh, you know, it's touching. It's a touching movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that whole sequence, when once he realizes what Spock's doing, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty tough. Of course, like the iconic, we're going to put the hands oh, on yeah. the glass. I, I mean, that's a, it's a really beautiful moment. And even though it's become memed, it's still one that when I went, you know, when I saw the film a couple months ago, it still landed. Like, this yeah. huge impact. Like, the, the entire theater was, like, weeping. You yeah. know? Like, it's, not, it's a great not moment. not just memed. It's, you know, it's a Christmas ornament, too, that you can purchase at Hallmark, or at one point you could, and now you can get it on eBay. <laughs> which is weird like, yeah right Merry Christmas I'm dying <laughs> yeah right right oh, live so, long and prosper celebrate my death like, like Jesus Christ he rose from the grave on the, uh, and on the third film on the third film exactly there you go you, you did talk a lot about friendship yeah. being a really strong theme and I, and I agree with you and that's one thing I think that really sets Star Trek apart is because all the characters because they have that, that relationship that's established on the TV shows when, when you get to the films like all of those moments and those interactions just mean a lot more but I'm kind of curious how I mean you 
saw Star Trek at a really young age. Yeah. So how do you think that the the theme of friendship that really that you really took away from the film impacted your own life and how you yeah. interacted with your own friends? No, I think that's a great question. I don't know a great answer for that other than uh, maybe wanting to have friends like that. Uh, I mean, how many of us can truly say that we have friends who would literally die for us? Um, I get that's a common motif in, in, you know, sort of your military type narratives. And perhaps we'll see that as more and more films are made about um, Iraq and Afghanistan over the coming years. Um, but it is a powerful thing to uh, have friends who will, uh, you know, I think according to some, it was captain kirk's like 52nd birthday in in star trek 2 or whatever you know have friends who will take time out for an insignificant birthday uh have friends who will um sneak you some illegal romulan ale (laughs) yeah uh friends who will be there um give you good advice um but also who will uh go through life with you um even death, um, deep emotions, and be with there when you're at your lowest point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you see that in Wrath of Khan. Um, and so uh, very few of us have something like that. So in addition to this great utopian future with no famines or money or class uh, or racial, racial divisions, um, here are these great friendships that are also possible. And I think those are more attainable now um, than the other things. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if we build the friendships, the rest will follow. Right. Who knows? Yeah, that's, um, that's, a, that's a really moving. I think that's a, that's a great point. It, it, in a lot of ways, it, it sounds like it painted like what ideal friendships look like yeah. so you know what to look for. So what would you say are some of your – one of your favorite moments that you have with your grandfather watching Star Trek? Do you have any specifics? Yeah. So I remember specifically uh, sitting on that little bed that also dubbed as a couch. Uh, he's sitting to my right in this little bitty um, little bitty living room and uh, smoking his cigarettes and the episode The Corbomite Maneuver uh, was on – and uh, the Enterprise is approaching this uh, geodesic gold uh, div- this object in space. And, and then uh, Balok or Balak is appearing to them on the screen. And he looks like this terrifying alien um, that was probably the creation of someone's LSD trip <laughs> working on Star Trek. And then they finally meet him. And it's a little boy played by Clint Howard, Ron Howard, the famous director, his little brother who plays creepy characters and lots of things. And something about seeing a little boy uh, in that position of great power scared the living crap out of me. (laughs) And I remember seeing it on that little TV like it was yesterday. Like ter- so terrifying, just like plant implanted itself in your yeah, brain. <laughs> yeah, because that's a that's a three act that's a three act episode, and it builds each act builds upon one on on the other instead of transitioning to something else. And it's just as a four or five year old, it was just very intense. Mm-hmm. 
I do remember that. That's a good. That's a good one too. Like especially because you know those things you experience experience when you're a kid that are really scary, even if they aren't scary, they stick with you for a long time. So have you uh, have you kept up with Star Trek since your childhood? Yeah. So uh, I've not watched Discovery yet. Uh, I'm going to wait until all the episodes are done, and then I'll probably watch it sort of Netflix style, one after another, uh, on CBS All Access. I watched every next gen episode and movie, uh, Deep Space Nine, most of those, quite a few Voyagers. I was pumped, pumped when, um, oh, now what was the, really pumped when, uh, was it on the WB or whatever? Uh, Scott Bakula was the lead in the in a star the was it Star Trek Enterprise Enterprise yeah, yeah I think that was it yeah. Star Trek Enterprise and thought oh this is gonna fill that void in my Star Trek soul and uh, it started off strong and then just teetered off for me and I fell out of love with it yeah Enterprise is a, a tough series yeah. I, a lot of uh, Trek fans had a hard time making it through that the one the chemistry just wasn't there. Uh, I've seen all the, the the reboot movies. I enjoy them as science fiction. They were so smart in that first one to introduce a new timeline. Uh, so they kept all that is beloved about Star Trek intact and then started over, uh, which was genius. Um, the chemistry is not quite there for me. Uh, it's almost it's great. Um, Good act. It's fantastic acting there, but they're also acting out the chemistry. Uh, I still go back to on on BBC. They show the original series, and I if I catch it, I'm stuck. I'm hooked. Uh, if I travel, sometimes I download on uh, Amazon. We'll download a few episodes and watch that. Uh, I recently nice. rewatched two and six, um, just to kind of live in that nostalgia nothing, nothing wrong with that every once in a while i mean and you, for, for wrath of Khan, you got to add that on your ticker right you've now yeah. seen it 501 times right <laughs> and then i realized rewatching six it had been a while was wow this is a tremendously awful movie yeah <laughs> but it sort of wrapped up the story in an okay way is, is that the last one with spock and kirk in it Yes, it's the one at the where the Kling, where Kronos explodes and the Klingons uh, are on life support. Uh, it's basically, hey, let's let's copy the end of the Cold War and apply that to the Star Trek universe, and that way we can explain how Worf is a good guy in the next generation. Okay, very very cool. So uh, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on on Discovery. I haven't uh, I watched the first episode, but wasn't fully attentive and yeah. caught myself and I said, nope. If I'm gonna when I when I sit down for this, this is because I, I, I'm I I love next gen Deep Space Nine. I love Deep yeah. Space Nine. I love that because that's the one that get, I feel like it's the most bonkers and off the walls with like the sci-fi elements. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited for to see what Discovery brings. And so far, the the buzz from from the uh, I mean from critics and the Trek community has been pretty positive. Yeah, so far. And another series has been ordered. Oh, excellent! We'll see. So, that's great news. Yeah. All right. So another season. We get another season at least. So that's that's, no, that's no, good. No, no, no. Another series. Like series in the universe. Oh snap! Wait, it's going to air at the same time. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Well, that's exciting. Um, and I would, I, I agree uh, with kind of what you said about the films. I, I really, I think I like the, the first one's pretty good. I think the of the new strike films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last act has a lot of last act problems. A typical J.J. Abrams problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really liked the third one. Uh, Beyond. I really liked that one a lot. Better than the second one. Definitely. Yes. 
There yeah. was no need to resurrect Khan for the for the second one. Well, that's the thing. The second one, they it felt like they just were pandering to what they thought fans wanted. They're like, okay, so we've got to bring in Khan, and it, like the thing is, it's like they didn't understand why that movie was really so important, and like why the relationships that have built up over the series mattered so much. Like he just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, so yeah, the end of darkness is okay. It's okay, but beyond, I think uh, is, a, is a great great little film. Um, all right, well, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about in relation to Star Trek or the Wrath of Khan today? Uh, if you haven't seen it, you have to, man. Uh, the bigger screen, the better. I think, too, uh, one of the ways that it set the stage for the rest of the universe, or Star Trek universe was uh, the major shift in costume design. Oh, yeah. I know people talk about that, but the the new Starfleet Reds, they didn't look like uh, jumpers, like in the, the, the motion picture. Yeah. That were trying too hard. Of course, you know, that's being made in the, you know, kind of the dirty 70s. And uh, maybe people like to look like they were wearing skin-tight leisure, shoes, <laughs> leisure, leisure suits at the time. I don't know. Uh, uniforms pop. I think, too, seeing other ships in Starfleet that don't look like the Enterprise, that are not Constitution class, was pretty cool. Um, and then just... Uh, you know, one of the ways to watch Trek is uh, how many sort of literary, you know, a British and American literary references are you going to check? Right. You know, how, how many are you going to find out? And, and I think that's one of the things that kind of made it a thinking person's show was they tried to pay homage to kind of the classics of theater, if you will. And, and you know, they had lots of theater actors. Shatner's an accomplished Shakespearean and was also in many Twilight, a few Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, but just those literary references that, that might be missing mm-hmm. now. They, they, they. I think they captured that well in Next Gen. It seems like it's just not very common as much anymore for people to liter- to reference classical literature. We've gotten so caught up in referencing, you know, older pop culture right. <laughs> that we're not doing as much classical stuff anymore. I think it's it definitely sets it apart, especially as a humanities person. Come on, come on, guys. Yeah, come on. yeah, I, I agree. Uh, well, very cool. Well, Bobby, uh, thanks so much for joining Thank us uh, on the Cinematics Mag today. Now, if uh, listeners really enjoyed this talk, I want to keep up with you somewhere on the internet. Where can they keep up with you at? <laughs> Uh, Twitter is good. Uh, Bobby underscore Griffith, B-O-B-B-Y underscore G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. That's probably the best place. His uh, Twitter is quite funny. Uh, I have to admit, I love following Bobby. He's always got lots of either very insightful think pieces about politics or uh, history or uh, is making lots of meme jokes, which is pretty fantastic. So uh, I highly recommend you give Bobby a follow. And of course, make sure to subscribe to The Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast application of your choice to get all of the latest updates sent straight to your device. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was co-hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. Silver Screen Soliloquies was co-hosted by Laron Chapman. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexandra Bohannon, and we want to send a special thanks to this month's SAS guest, Bobby Griffith. Follow all of the updates for the Cinematic Schematic by liking The Cinematropolis on Facebook or following us on Twitter or Instagram at The Cinematrop. And make sure not to miss our next month's episode when we take a closer look at the Cinematropolis monthly theme of Misunderstood Movie Monsters on The Cinematic Schematic. And until next time... 